Dude, what's the campaign trend like, man? Uh, it's been pretty crazy so far. You know, like, uh, obviously, as a 21-year-old, this is my first shot at anything like this. And it's been uh, it, uh, in the exploratory, like, kind of getting out there and talking to people and kind of playing politician in a sense. It, it's been pretty exciting. Uh, I think the one thing that's been the most challenging is kind of playing the part. Uh, Cause I'm, I just feel like a normal guy, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not the politician type. I, I don't like, you know, posing for the cameras and everything like that. So when I sit down in a meeting and I've got to kind of switch into politician mode, I think that's been the most challenging thing so far, but, but it's been exciting, man. I'm running here in my, in my local community. I've lived here my entire life. So, you know, I have a really good understanding of the people here and, and uh, the culture and the way people interact with each other. And I love this city and this state. So, you know, it's been exciting, man. Man, what, what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about running for office? Like when you were started running, were you just like, oh, wow, I thought this was like, it is a whole nother ballgame. Yeah, I mean, I would say whenever you start to net, network with people, uh, it's it's a little different because you kind of have to approach it not as like, hey, we're buddies, we're going to chat about this right now, but you kind of have to, every time you talk to someone, you're kind of trying to buy their vote, right, with the conversation. Yeah. Um, so you got to be a little more careful with what you say, you know, how you present things. And that's the thing about being from, from this being my hometown, you know, like people that I've known my entire life, it's a completely different complex when I talk to them now, because I know that everything I say and everything that they've known about me uh, go into that decision about, you know, if they're going to cast a ballot for me or not. So, but it's been great. You know, the community has been really receptive. Uh, obviously with my podcast, there's a lot of people here in the community that already knew who I was and, and what I'm all about politically. So that was a little easier to, to integrate from the beginning, but um, as far as meeting uh, people for the first time and kind of presenting my pitch to them, that's that's been something I've been working on, and I think we got it down pretty good at this point. So, you got your elevator pitch. I got a question for you, man. Like when you go meet somebody, like let's say let's say you don't know me, and this is our first time meeting. Yeah. How fast do you trying to get to know that person? Like, what's your process you go through? Yeah. So that's something that I had to work on too because I'm really easy going when I go to meet people like I, I really am comfortable meeting new people and just sparking up a conversation with the stranger but like in certain periods you kind of have to judge whether or not it's appropriate to kind of bring the campaign into it or not like uh, for example the other day I was standing in line at Chick-fil-a and I was <laughs> talking to this guy about like what's going on in the political sphere and everything like that and I couldn't really gauge if he was a conservative or if he was on the other side or like what was going on so I kind of went to him. I was like, hey, you know, you can uh, you can check me out. Here's my card and my wife like that. And immediately when I said that, it was just like the conversation completely stopped. So, oh. so it was like, oh, all right. Well, that's I don't I don't think he's going to vote for me. But <laughs> but no, it, it, it's uh, it's been kind of cool, though. Uh, and definitely that's the minority of situations. Most of the time, whenever you go out and talk to people uh, and you're like, hey, I'm running for office, they're always like, oh, cool. And, you know, you get their the card to them and they can go check out your website and everything like that. So, uh, so that's been exciting. It's been fun. It's just been a little different, you know, just trying oh, yeah. to kind of get that involved in that process. So. David, I got, I, I got to commend you, man, for having, but the courage, man, that you 21 years old, you said, man, I want to run for office. Yeah, what man. was it? More importantly, did you have any moment 
as you're prepping for office that you became nervous or you just, I don't think I can do it. Or is it just, I'm going to go for it and wing it, see what happens. Oh yeah. So absolutely. I would say that one of the first things that I had to do when I decided, you know, I think I'm going to make a serious run for this. I had to kind of take a look at all of my social medias. And I think a lot of people don't talk about this very much, but whenever you decide to run for office, even in a statewide election, uh, your life is an open book, essentially. You, you really don't have anything private because you never know when somebody on the other side might try to pull up, you know, an old tweet or an old post or, you know, pull up your Instagram. Uh, so that was something that immediately before I even made an announcement, I was like, I need to go look, you know, check myself, make sure that there's nothing out there that a potential opponent uh, could pull and uh, use against me in the future. So that was one of the first things. Uh, whenever I was going through all the paperwork, which, which there's a lot of it. <laughs> so uh, I was going through the paperwork and everything and, and just kind of trying to fully grasp, you know, what, what you're doing when you put yourself out there. Um, as far as my motivations, you know, like I said before, I'm not really a, a politician at all. Uh, in fact, like all the way up, even when I started my podcast, I was like, I got questions that were like, would you guys ever run for office, me and my brother? And, uh, my answer was always like, no, I really don't want to, like, yeah. I, I don't really have any aspirations for that. Um, but I think that at a certain point, uh, when you love your city and you love your state so much and you see the types of things that are, are coming to the state, uh, and especially when you look around the country and look at other states and what they're doing, you worry about that stuff coming to your hometown and your home state. And I think that if you have the facilities and you have the, the drive and the motivation, I think a lot of more people that are just average folks should be running for office uh, because one thing that I've noticed a lot of people in the political sphere, whether left or right, have complained about a lot is draining the swamp. You know, all these politicians are really dirty. They're all corrupt. You know, this image of what politicians are. And I think a big reason for that is because a lot of average citizens just don't feel like they want to run. And I think that if a lot of people that are just normal folks that, that love their community started running for office, we would see a lot less of that. And the perception would change uh, on that particular issue. Oh, yeah. Well, that leads me to the next question. What are your thoughts about career politicians? I personally hate career politicians. Yeah, no, I think that it, I don't have said this before, but I think term limits are a pretty good idea in general. I think we need them. Yeah, I, I think that people that push for them have the right idea. Uh, because you look at people on both sides, you know, you look at Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, and then on the right, you look at somebody like Mitch McConnell, those guys that have been in office literally for, it seems like thousands of years. It uh, looks like it. And you're like, you know, the president obviously has a term limit and we have term limits in a lot of other offices, mm -hmm. uh, even at a statewide level. So I think term limits are, are not only a good idea, but I think that we should be implementing them. I think it would only help. But going back to the earlier thing, we're talking about more average people running. Why do you think not many average people run? Do you think it's because they think it's either too hard or not worth it? Like what, what you, you've been on the ground, you're seeing it firsthand. So what do you right. think it is? Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, it does, it is a dedication, you know, like obviously my election, the primary election isn't even until March of next year. So you have to kind of make a decision really well in advance that you're going to dedicate your life to this for a few 
few years, essentially, depending on how long your race is. But I think for a lot of people, they're really hesitant to commit that kind of time and effort into it. Uh, even if they feel like they'd be good at it, they feel like they would have a knack for it. I think a lot of people are hesitant to essentially put their careers on the side to go pursue political office. Uh, and that's where I feel like I, I'm at the advantage because I'm 21. I don't have kids. I'm not married. Like I can sit here and dedicate time to this um, at this point in my life. I feel like I have enough time and resources to run. Uh, and I think a lot more young people should be running. Got the benefit of time on yourself. But go, are you still doing the podcast while you're running? How is that whole thing shaking up? Yeah, uh, we actually just put out an episode just a couple of weeks ago. We we were trying to do like at least one episode per month, but obviously with the campaign and everything, it's been a little bit harder to get into the studio to do that yeah. stuff. Um, but I really feel like the podcast that I do is really beneficial for the voters because we get a direct line of communication. A lot of our listeners are based here in the DFW area and in Texas in general. Uh, and I think it's a good idea because – you know, they get to hear what I think about everything, you know, state, local, federal politics. And then also, you know, like we talk about all kinds of stuff on the show, people send us in questions and suggestions. I think it's a great line of communication. I know that there are more popular politicians doing podcasts now, too. I've seen some pretty interesting ones, but yeah. I think it's a great idea. And, and I'm looking forward to keeping it going, even even if I end up getting elected, I think it would be great if I could keep the podcast going. Oh, I yeah. love doing it too. So, David, if you want to go ahead and uh, plug your podcast, feel free, man. <laughs> yeah, the podcast is The Conservative Front. Uh, you can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. The Conservative Front, it's me and my twin brother, who's actually my campaign manager as well. Uh, so, both of us just sit down in front of Mike, usually about an hour long. We just chat about. Uh, mostly federal stuff, but also local and state issues as well, because that's important to the people too. So, I was listening well, to some of your episodes earlier too. That it's really interesting getting you know both perspectives on that uh, sort of thing. I was listening to the last one uh, where you had a Biden staffer and a Trump uh, campaign guy as well talking. That, that's really interesting. Uh, I think that's that's a really cool concept. I think I think I no I think I heard this from. Um, Ted Cruz, I forgot how long ago it was, but he said a great idea would be getting a person on the right and a person on the left, start like a newspaper right, and have them both write about the same issue, and literally you could see in real time the differences in thought and opinions. I think that's great. You literally just put, okay, we're talking about I don't know, gun rights today, and you have a person on the left, person on the right. It's the same issue, just one issue, but then you can then see the different viewpoints. I think that'd be a gold mine, man. I really do. That sounds awesome, <laughs> honestly, and and it comes back into the issue of the media these days, because even on the right, you know, people like Fox News, Daily Wire, The Blaze, those media outlets, they obviously have a leaning and some of them are a little bit more uh, blatant about where they stand, but some of them aren't. Yeah. Uh, and it's really hard to get really honest media these days. I think that's one of the biggest issues uh, from a citizen standpoint is, you know, because the facts used to be universal. It used to be here are the facts. And then you had your op-eds, you had your yeah. leanings and everything like that. But these days it seems like you can't even trust a lot of the facts that are coming out. It's um, it very true, man. Like you go one paper and it says the world's on fire. You go to the next paper said, now the world is, is raining. Exactly. And you're just like, what's going on, man? It can't be raining and raining. It can't be raining and burning at the same time. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that we're really fighting a war on information these days. When you, whenever you look at these columns uh, and these outlets and publications, basically directly contradicting each other on the facts, and you, you struggle as a citizen to take away the actual uh, substance from those articles, and and it's really difficult these days, man. You ever see it's? I think it's called like Desert News. You ever you ever seen these YouTube ads? I don't think so. It's supposed to be this website where basically it compiles all these news stories and it says, okay, this is written from someone on the right, moderate, middle, right. Or it like says like the political biases and it compares and crafts it. I've seen that. Ad. I've never tried it. I kind of want to see what it's about. It sounds cool. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty useful resource, honestly, to be able to judge the bias and yeah. see through all that. I've heard a really interesting rumor, and this is something I've heard from my brother who's in the military. He says a lot of guys in the military actually watch and listen to foreign news broadcasts. Uh, really? Because it kind of takes away the American journalism out of it. Uh, and there's a lot more straightforward facts in the foreign broadcast because they don't have any political interest either way. Uh, so I've heard that. I've heard a lot of people are starting to do that, and it sounds kind of interesting to me. But, um, but yeah. I mean, it kind of does make sense. It, it really does make sense in a sense. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what you were talking about, where it kind of lays out and it says, here's the bias, you know, who's who's writing this. But the foreign media, there's obviously no underlying you know, narrative. There's no motivation to make it lean one way or the other. So I think you get a little bit more uh, clear what the facts of and everything are in that situation. Oh, yeah. So, David, this is kind of completely out of left field, man. Let's see. Well, I was thinking about this the other day because I was talking to my buddy Blake and we're talking about uh, you know, being a parent because we're, I mean, a couple of years we'll be dads eventually, like everything. Right. What, what's your opinions on school choice, man? Because I, I was, I was, I was talking, man. I was thinking, I was like, if I got to send my kids to public school, like I went to public school, I'm a child of public school. I got no problem with public school, but 99% of the stuff I learned in like K through 12, I'll be honest, it's just useless. Yeah. Really is. It's a waste of time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was actually talking and I've been going around the community and speaking with a lot of the principals of the schools here in the district, uh, because with COVID and everything, you kind of need to get perspective of somebody who's been on the ground in the school for the last year or so yeah. um, from through the pandemic and everything kind of just kind of seeing where they've struggled the most, where they could use some extra funding and things like that. Um, but yeah, school choice, totally in favor. Uh, I think that as a, as a parent, you should be able to dictate what kind of education your children is getting, uh, what your children are getting. Um, but yeah, I'm a big f proponent of school choice. I've seen a lot of interesting debate on this topic because there's a lot of people that say, well, you get the funding from your local taxes, so it's not fair to go send your kid to a school where they get more funding and you're not paying as much into that system. Um, I could see that argument, but I think at the end of the day, parents should have the ultimate decision on yeah. what they want for their child. So, and I think that in general, with the way that public education is kind of swinging right now, I think you're going to see a lot more parents take on homeschooling and private school. Uh, there's a lot of issues these days with the public education system. Uh, and a lot of people are getting a little bit fed up with how everything is going in public school. So I think you're going to see a lot of that happening, which ultimately is not too great for public education. Uh, but, you know, I think there's avenues that we can take to kind of reduce that and, and improve those systems the best we can. 
And that's another thing I've been really harping on with these leaders in the community is trying to see where the best way we can allocate funds and resources to kind of quell this issue and make it, you know, the most efficient for the kids. So I got another question then, David, kind of picking back off of that. Yes, sir. My question is, let's say, you know, we reallocate funds. What do you see are the biggest issues with school in general? Just is it the lack of recess? Is it just studying subjects that are rather unhelpful later in life? What do you think it is? Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of emphasis these days on getting a certain score and getting a certain grade. And so what you have is this dynamic complex between the students where they're not really trying to learn, they're trying to memorize so that they can pass the tests and things like that. There's not as much learning happening as there is, you know, trying to cram to get a good grade. Uh, and I think that's a big issue in the schools these days because it, it didn't used to be like that because there wasn't so much stress on, you know, having to get a good grade to pass or to move on or whatever, uh, good SAT score. All those things are now super emphasized. Uh, so you have kids even at the high school level who aren't really learning as much as they're just kind of repeating information that they've memorized and as we know you know one year out of high school most of what you've memorized you're completely done on um, so that's a big problem I, I think that one thing we can do is kind of pull back on such rig rigid regulations when it comes to these are the classes you have to take these are the scores you have to get um, and I think that if we put a little less emphasis in general on you have to get this number to pass or you have to take this class uh, to pass. I think if we did a little bit less of that and a little more organic teaching, uh, we could bring those scores up naturally. I think it would be better for the kids in general. David, I got an idea. You tell me if this is crazy or not. I was thinking about this for a little bit. I forget who I was talking to. This might have been Gavin Wax. It might have been Gavin, I think. But I, I was thinking of a system, man, where we just get rid of grades. Now, hear me out now. I know this sounds crazy. But I'm just saying we get rid of standardized testing. I hate I hate testing. Like you said, it's literally you're, you're not learning to learn. You're just learning to memorize. And then after you do it, you forget everything. Right. I say get rid of the, get rid of the standardized test. I say get rid of the grades. Here's what I think we should do. I think it should be the teacher who decides that the student passes. Like you come in, right? And let's say at the start of the semester, you do like a little diagnostic test, almost like a pre-test. It's like, okay, let's say if I'm teaching engineering, and let's say if I'm taking calculus, okay, build a project, build a, build like a, so an engineering concepts, there's the parabola, and the whole point of the parabola is the little basin it's in, anywhere the signal comes in at, it redirects it to the main point and amplifies it, so right. like making a mock little of that thing. Mm -hmm. I think if we did more project learning and less book reading, that'd be great, because at that point, you're not reading a book, so let's say you want, like, let's say we're in a shop class, and it's like, okay, our goal for this semester is to make a limit into a reliable car. That kid is going to have to learn what a wrench does, what a cool, what coolant fluent is. He's learning, but he's learning indirectly the whole entire system. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely, it's an interesting idea <laughs> when you put it out there. A lot of people are pretty resistant, some like that, but I yeah. think you make a great point. Uh, a lot of hands-on learning is something that's lacking in a lot of, especially in rural areas where they don't have as much resources and as much access uh, to those kinds of lesson plans. I'm grateful enough. I grew up here in DFW where I had a great school. Uh, I had a great education and we had 
what's called the Bechtel. It's like a technology and learning center. And they taught all kinds of classes there. You know, there was automotive tech, robotics, audio, video production, all kinds of awesome. And obviously I acknowledge that not all kids have that resource for them. They don't have the ability to get in there and get hands-on with specific career evaluations and paths. Um, But I think that that's where we can kind of help out with the funding. I think that's one place where if we kind of take a look and see who needs money the most and allocate it the correct way, we could get a little more of that hands-on stuff in those underdeveloped schools and communities. Oh, yeah, man. I honestly think if we would shift it to more of a hands-on, because I, I saw a quote, man. I forget who it is from, but it's basically, oh, it's from John Jacob Astor, the really rich guy in real estate. He's basically saying um, – theory like hands-on practice is worth a pound of theory i mean because anyone can just study theory but unless you actually go out there it's like you can say okay i think if i do this the car is going to start i was like well how about you go try it and see if the car starts right exactly yeah no my favorite class in high school was physics i was always interested in you know physics and and i'm kind of a math guy so physics was naturally like my favorite science uh, yeah. there's a lot of algebra and stuff in that but I remember this so vividly. My class project at the end of the year was to build a trebuchet, which is kind of like a catapult, but it's kind of in its own power. It doesn't have any springs or levers or anything like that. And that was one of the coolest projects I ever did. We spent like eight weeks on it and it was our final exam grade. We had to build this trebuchet and kind of model it from start to finish, go through the entire, you know, scientific method, the process and everything like that. That was one of the coolest things I ever did. And it's not, it wasn't super expensive either. I mean, you, you get some wood and some resources for maybe like 20, 30 bucks for your group. And you could put that project together. Those are things that I think are really beneficial. And obviously like, I still remember that today. So yeah. that's one of those things that sticks with you. I guarantee you, if I went in there and took a hundred question long physics exam, I wouldn't have remembered three quarters of what was on that exam. So yes. And then literally after the exam, it always kills me, man. Like, have you ever done this thing? Like, I remember back in high school, man, I would take a test in like pharmacology. And I kid you not, about two weeks later, I would forget everything I learned. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, I think one of the best things I've come up with as far as trying to solve the education issue is here in Texas, we have legalized gambling. We have uh, scratch off tickets and things like that through the Texas lottery. I've proposed legalizing sports betting and bringing casinos to the state of Texas as well as something I'm in favor of. Uh, You know, a lot of that revenue from the Texas lottery goes directly towards education. Uh, And some of the estimates that I've seen, the the calculations I've made, we could be making hundreds of millions of dollars if we legalize sports betting. Uh, and, And we could direct all that to education or most of it and solve a lot of problems. You know, I was talking to these principals and I'm like, you know, wouldn't it be great if you had a few thousand extra dollars every year for your budget and, and they just lit up with how many ideas they had to spend the, that money and make their schools better. Um, and that's one place where I really feel like we can get a lot of funding in. Uh, unfortunately, the GOP has been kind of resistant to this. A lot of the traditional Republicans, they don't like necessarily uh, legalizing these things because they kind of see it as sinful. Um, but I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of it. I think legalizing sports betting would be great for the state and we already have gambling. There's already a market here in the state for it. Uh, 
The last time I checked, I believe in 2020, there was an average of $610 spent per person in Texas on just lottery uh, scratch off tickets and things like that in the state. So there is a market for it. And obviously there's a big sports market here in Texas too, especially in DFW with the Rangers, Cowboys, Stars, uh, and all those teams. And then obviously in Houston, you know, you got the Rockets and the Texans, you got the Spurs in San Antonio. There's all kinds of sports marketing going on down here. Um, so I think it's just a logical step that we could take and, and bring in that extra revenue. What, what do you think brings a hesitancy? Because, I mean, for guys our age, we see it, and we're – I'm all gung-ho about it because it brings jobs and more money. That's what we need. Exactly. But why do you think the the older Republicans have been so against it? Yeah, I'm not too sure um, fundamentally, like logistically on paper. I'm not sure why they're opposed to it. I think a lot of Christian conservatives are morally opposed. They, they, they see gambling as kind of a sin, and they see it as uh, something that's not very pure. It's kind of like – um, what they do, what they call a sin tax, they tax like c- cigarettes, alcohol, uh, gambling and stuff like that. I think that's kind of the general consensus as far as a moral standpoint goes. Um, on paper, I haven't really seen a great argument against it other than that the Texas state constitution uh, has a ban on sports gambling. So legislatively, what you're going to have to do is amend the constitution. Uh, so it's something that is not an easy process at all. Uh, oh, but yes. the idea is gaining steam in the GOP. And I think that if we elect a couple guys like me who are in favor of it on the right side, I think we could get it passed in the next two or three legislative sessions. And bring that money. But I want I want to um, go to a different segment. David, you know we're going to have to talk about this. Presidency. Who's your favorite president? Uh, this this answer might shock you. Uh, my favorite president of all time was actually James K. Polk. Uh, the reason that I say that a lot of people, yeah, I like I like. It. Go ahead. Yeah, they, a lot of people don't even give him credit, and they don't even remember who he is. But he was a guy that ran for. Uh, he was a one-term president, and he said at the beginning, "I'm running for one term to get these things done, and I'm doing it." Uh, he came in and said, "Here's the things I want to do." got in office, did those things, and then he was out, just like he said he was going to do. One of the biggest things he did was he annexed Texas. Uh, I believe that was in 1845. So I I owe my American citizenship to Mr. Polk. Uh, (laughs) But outside of that, there there were a lot of great achievements he had. I think that a lot of popular conservatives say Reagan was their favorite president. Uh, I I could see it, uh, but definitely I think Polk is, is my favorite of all time. Well, let me ask you this, bringing back, what about Calvin Coolidge? What are your thoughts about him? Yeah, Coolidge, uh, he was interesting. I, I'm I'm generally resistant to like big government guys uh, and guys that kind of push those federal regulations in general. I yeah. think that he did great things, though. Uh, you know, some of the things he did with the railroad industry and things like that and the schools as well. Um, yeah, Coolidge, he, he's okay. I think, and I know it's like recency bias, but I think Trump was a great president in, in all honesty. I think that there's a lot of things he did that were very beneficial to our modern state. Uh, and again, I know it's recency bias because he was kind of the first guy that I really was able to track through his entire political career. Um, but yeah, Trump, Trump's another one. I think he's in the top five. Who do you think? I got a question for you. When did you start getting involved in politics? Like what age was it that you knew? It's like, okay, I want to do this in life. Yeah. I mean, 
I don't think there was an age where I was like, I'm going to get into this, you know, like when I decided I'm really going to get involved in this. I started to get interested in it in high school. Uh, I didn't really grow up in a house where my parents talked politics a lot. Uh, it wasn't really something that we discussed, and, and I didn't really pay too much attention to it until Trump came around, and there was a lot of attention nationally on him. And I'm a big history guy. I've always been interested in history. Uh, especially Texas history. And I think in a lot of cases, politics kind of drives history. If you look at a lot of the major historical events in our country, uh, they're mostly driven by political action uh, on the previous end. So they're naturally correlated. I think that I kind of got into it when I was like a sophomore in high school. And then once Trump was elected in 2016, I was a junior then. Um, that was when I really took a hard look at politics in general and, and kind of got to get a more broad sense of how everything works in the political sphere. David, what are your thoughts about farming, man? Oh, here's a question for you, David. After, like, what, no, after you do all your political stuff, like, where do, you, where do you see yourself retiring to? Do you think you're going to be one of those people who just retires and you go off to like Amarillo and you're just chilling on your tractor, like 100 acres of land? Or you think you'll be a Florida party on a yacht, man? Like, what, what's your ideal retirement, man? I mean, yeah, there's a – I think definitely Texas. It's going to take a lot to get me to move out of Texas at any point in my life. Uh, even if I kind of advance in politics and, and maybe make a run at a federal seat or something like that, it's going to take a lot to pull me out of this state, man. I love this state so much, and there's so much that you can see here. I mean, like you said, Amarillo is – forever away from here and yet it's still in texas you know you have places like corpus christi or galveston you can get that coastal lifestyle uh you can live in a big city you know houston san antonio dallas fort worth you you kind of got it all here so i think my ideal retirement would be somewhere not too far from the city because i don't want to be far enough to not be able to see baseball games uh but I think somewhere in this area, DFW, maybe San Antonio, a, a place like that in the suburbs, not in the city, though. You want some land? That'd be like. That's right. Maybe San Marcos, man. Yeah, San Marcos. That, that's, a, that's a nice place. I have some buddies that go to college down there, so I've been down there a few times. It's amazing. Dave, that's yeah. all my questions, man. I was, talking, you were talking? I was gonna say, I was talking to a buddy the other day, and uh, he asked me, he was like, if you couldn't live in Texas, where would you live? And I was like, man, day by day, Florida is sounding more appealing by the day, man. Like every day that I see something out of Florida, I'm like, man, maybe that wouldn't be too bad. What about Tennessee, man? I think Tennessee's underrated. Yeah, Tennessee, especially like the Nashville area. Those guys are great, man. That lifestyle is really good for me. And they don't have to worry about hurricanes or anything over there either. You know, the weather's mostly nice. It doesn't get too cold. Uh, I can't stand the cold, man. Anywhere north of St. Louis, I'm out. How were you doing during that whole power outage thing? What, were your, what was your take on that, man? Because it seemed like everybody was coming at Greg Abbott because of the, the lack of regulation because of yeah. that whole thing. I think that with Texas being such a warm climate and being so temperate here in the state, I think a lot of people weren't prepared for this at all. 
and I don't really love defending politicians a whole lot, but I think that that storm that we had was kind of a once in a decade type situation. Uh, Definitely something that nobody was prepared for. So a lot of people go after Greg Abbott and they say, oh, he didn't do this and this to, to make sure everything was prepared, but really nobody was prepared. I mean, we really weren't ready for that at all as a population. So I, I give, I give a little bit of leniency to our leaders uh, because nobody was really expecting it, but I do remember it though, because I remember that everything was shut down for a few days. Nobody was going anywhere. I actually had a few friends that completely lost power in their house. Um, So I actually brought them to my apartment. They stayed with me for several days uh, because I was lucky enough not to lose power or water the entire time. Uh, so I kind of had a few guys staying here and, and taking shelter, but yeah, that was a crazy couple of days, man. That week was just wild. Dude. Cause I saw some stuff you see the, like the pipes were bursting. Like, cause you know, I always have like the video. I think the videos are always the hardest thing to watch, man. Cause you see these people that like sleeping in the cars, man, the water's pouring out and all this bad stuff happening. And like, I don't know if this happens to everybody, but you, know, you get that little feeling in your heart. You're like, dang, dog, like, can I do anything help him? It's one of those things where you feel so sorry for him. Like, literally, I saw this one man where this lady was like sitting. She's an older lady. And I think her husband died because the power came up. You heard that story? The husband yeah. died because he was like on respirator. The power came off and he died. I was like, boom. Yeah. yeah, that was pretty crazy. I know what you're talking about, though. I felt the same way when Hurricane Harvey hit here in, in Texas in 2017. Uh, I have family in Houston, so naturally I was worried about them, but also just seeing some of the images out of the, out of the Southern region and kind of seeing what people were dealing with. I mean, that was a crazy storm too. And you kind of get that feeling every time where you're like, is there anything I can do? You know, even if I just give, you know, a couple dollars to this uh, charity of this organization that's helping. Uh, I actually took off of work for a few days when Harvey hit and I, I went down there to help my family in that community uh, brought some bottled water, you know, got a place for them to stay in the hotel and everything like that. But yeah, that that's something that I think is a great thing about being an American is because you feel a sense of community with every American, whether it be, you know, somebody in the North that sees something like that happen down here in Texas, you know, they feel for those folks and they try to help out however they can. I think that's one of the greatest things about being an American is, is the sense of community with people that you don't even know with complete strangers. Uh, You feel a connection with them. Uh, They're your friends and neighbors, even if they're nowhere close to you. I I, know I always thought that was such an interesting concept too, because at least my, if you go abroad, right. In certain state, I always thought this was so interesting, man. Like a certain country, like let's say you go to Europe or something, or um, Germany, you're predominantly going to see white people there. But you come to America, man, you see everything: Asians, Indians. It's amazing. But it's it's so it's so trippy, man. Because when you spend so much time in the states, you think all every other country is like this, so multiracial. But then you go somewhere else, you're like, wait, why am I only seeing like one race of people usually? What's what's yeah. going on? Which is really why I don't understand this stigma around America that every American is so racist and hateful. I don't really understand that because if you look at the demographic of our country, like you said, it's unlike any other country in the world. I mean, the greatest thing about being American, I think, in this context is that you can put five people in a room of all different races and you can say, hey, pick out which one of them is American. And any of them could be because our country is just so diverse and, and culturally diverse as well. 
Um, and, and that's one of the greatest things about living here is that we have such a great sense of community. And it's just weird to me that there's this racial stigma around America because people like, like me and you who just live here on the ground, we don't sense or see any of that happening ever. Yeah, you don't feel it. Like, I feel like a lot of time, but you also got to think about this, though. The news, they get paid off of provocating. Like, right. if I, whatever gets eyeballs. So they're going to just make outlandish claims or they're going to make a fire bigger than what it is. But I mean, for the most part, and I want to hear your opinion on this as well. When I'm out there just day to day in my regular life, it's, people are just nice. They're casual, punctual. It's, there's nothing about it that makes me think, oh, that person thinks they're better than me. It's like just regular people. Right, exactly. I think that a lot of what the news media does is they highlight the very, very non-specific times where there's one case where somebody did something bad, and they try to apply that to broader life. They try to apply it to the entire country. But really, like people that just live here, common folks, I mean, everybody's doing all right down here, man. Uh, I've talked to somebody in Canada about this. I've been to Canada a couple of times. Uh, and it's always interesting to talk to people from another country and see how they perceive America from outside of, of here. And they're always like, man, isn't it, you live in Texas, isn't it so like racist down there? Like, isn't everybody kind of like mean to each other? And I'm like, I'm like, not at all. Like, it's the complete opposite. It's buddy, uh, buddy, usually. It's just a really weird like stigma that our country has. I don't know why it exists. Uh, I think it's because of what you said, the media they get paid to run those stories. They, they want to run stories that gets people's attention. Um, but yeah, it, that's always an interesting dynamic to me is when I travel outside of the U.S. or even to other parts of the U.S. And, and have them see what they think about Texas or see what they think about our country. It's really always an interesting conversation. I remember when I traveled to, I think I was in, Sorry, I'm trying to remember what city that was. I think I was in St. Louis or something. Uh, we're we're going to go with St. Louis. I think I was there. <laughs> I was in a museum and I had a group of like eighth grade kids come up to me and my brother because my brother was wearing like a Texas home shirt. Uh, and the people that the kids were like, hey, uh, do all you guys ride horses down there? I, was like, <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes you see horses, but we're not like riding horses to school or anything yeah. like that. And they were perplexed at the concept that people drive cars down here and <laughs> like, like don't ride on horseback every day. But I told them, I was like, you know, I, I see police officers on horses sometimes. They were like, whoa, no way. And uh, Yo, those eighth know, graders, the rest of their life, they're going to go to the text, but where are the police officers on horses? I don't see it. So yeah. it's not right. They were like, you guys wear all cowboy hats all the time. I was like, I mean, <laughs> they exist, but like, we're not always just wearing them, like walking around all the time. It's a you no, know I think is also uh, amazing, man. Is that for I, I can't say this for every state, but usually the bigger states, there's something about it, like either a, a city there or a specific characteristic that is kind of a stereotype. Like New York, I'm th whenever I think of New York, man, I think of just bumper to bumper traffic, people are squished in like sardines. Yeah. Or if you go to somewhere like California, what do you think of? You think of the Hollywood sign. You go to Texas. Well, if you've never been to Texas, you think it's horses and ranches. But if you live in Texas, you know, it's it's. <laughs> but if you live in Texas, you know, there's a bunch of hills, there's lakes, big cities. That's basically Texas. Yeah. Yeah. I've always enjoyed traveling. That's something that I've done basically since I was in high school. I love taking trips and seeing new places. Uh, you know, I've been to L.A., New York, D.C., 
uh, St. Louis. I've been to Canada several times, Toronto, Montreal. It's something I love to do, go out and meet people and, and get their perspective on things and just kind of see what the culture is like, because it is kind of weird to think about, but the culture between a place like DFW and Washington, D.C., it's completely different, man. Like you talk to people up there, the way they kind of interact with each other, uh, the way that people treat each other is different. Even their food, uh, everything about it is, is different. So it's, it's something to experience for sure. I remember when I first visited Boston, I got off the plane and I was at a restaurant near the airport and I held the door open for this woman that was coming into the restaurant. And she walked up to me straight up to me. And she said, I can get the door myself. And she would just walk past me like really rude. And I was like, that is the strangest thing that's ever happened to me because being from Texas, obviously that's just a cultural norm. That's something we do here. Yeah. And it was just really, it was a culture shock for me. I was like, I, I can't believe that just happened. And I still remember it. Like I can still see her face in my mind. That's how much it stuck with me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because I mean, we're from the South. So in the South, man, like you, people will look at you crazy. Right. If you just let the door hit somebody and you could have stopped it, they will literally just look at you like, really? You couldn't yeah, hold the door? Yeah. And even things like shaking hands when you meet people, like up in the Northern states, some a lot of people don't do that. Uh, they, they do the elbow bump or the fist bump or whatever. And they think That's it's really weird that you go to shake their hand. And I'm like, dude, I'm from Texas. I'll shake somebody's hand. Like if I'm in the drive-thru, I'll shake somebody's hand if I'm meeting. I thought everyone did that. Yeah, no, it's it's really crazy, but but that's one thing I, I enjoy about traveling is kind of seeing that live and in person. You know, you can read about these cities and read about these places all you want, but until you actually get there, uh, you get to see the differences and and see what what makes this country great, man. The diversity. I love this country. This gonna be. I, this is a question for you, man. What do you think the founding fathers would say? like the main ones, Je Jefferson, Washington, Adams, Hamilton. If they came back today, and I think they'd be what, over 300 years old, so they're really decrepit now. They got walkers <laughs> and everything. But what do you think they would say? Right <laughs> <laughs> what do you think they said the political structure we have? Would they just be like, okay, I don't know how this happened, but okay. Yeah, I, I mean, this is something that I've done a lot of research in because Washington famously said, uh, he was very against the two-party system. Uh, that's something that the Washington mainly, but a lot of the founders were against this, uh, this idea of political gridlock uh, from the two-party system. I think that they'd be spinning in their graves if they knew what was happening these days and the divide that we have now uh, between the parties. That's something I feel like that they just really would not enjoy at all with the two-party system. Uh, I, I think there are things that we've preserved well enough to where they'd be happy with where they are. I think that uh, capitalism, uh, the way that you look at technology now and you see all these great technological advancements that basically came out of a capitalist system. Some of these things wouldn't be possible uh, if we didn't have private corporations essentially racing against each other uh, to develop these new technologies and new inventions. Um, it is kind of incredible to look back even as short as like 30 years and see some of the things that we've developed over the last few decades. And, and it really is incredible to conceptualize how much we've been able to do, uh, especially in the technology field, but in general, uh, just seeing all these things that we've come up with. Uh, medicine is another big one too. I mean, you look at the coronavirus vaccine, for example, 
we developed this vaccine from start to finish in record time. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of amazing how quickly we were able to have medical breakthroughs like this. And I think it's only a matter of time before we, you know, start cracking down on some of those bigger vaccines that we're waiting for. Yeah, but no, I, I think that with, as far as the founders go, like, I think there's a lot of things that they would, would come back to come say right now. Like, I wish that we could just have like a, them send a letter essentially, and just be able to see, you know, here's the things we warned about. Here's the things you're doing now. And how can we fix this uh, political divide? Because the divide is deepening. Very. Uh, it, it's becoming very polarized and it's, it's going in a direction where I feel like we've got to take some corrective action here uh, because it, it's starting to get out of hand a little bit. And that's where I feel a real serious calling to run for office, because I feel like if more guys like me, the more common guys would get in there and, and try to bridge the gap as best they could. Uh, I think that we could solve a, a whole lot of these problems.